left off last time, seeing the chain of testimony about Jesus. It was from John the Baptist to Andrew and John, from Andrew to Peter and Philip, from Philip to Nathaniel. Jesus knew Nathaniel before Nathaniel knew Jesus. Remember, he saw Nathaniel under the fig tree even before John or even before Philip had called him. And when Nathaniel learned of Jesus' knowledge of him, he believed. He said, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel in chapter 1, verse 49. And Jesus' response to him in verse 50, in verse 50 is, Because you have believed when I told you that I saw you, you will see greater things than these. So, on the heels of that promise, Jesus is going to show Nathaniel and others greater things. The Apostle John, the writer of this Gospel, takes us to a wedding where Jesus begins to reveal something great to His disciples, namely, the glory of His divine power. So our text begins in chapter 2, with verse 1. So let me ask you to follow along as I read. This is the Word of God. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Women, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. In Jesus' first miracle, he privately displays his glory by abundantly providing for the people. Jesus privately displays his glory by abundantly providing for the people. In verses 1 through 5, we see the glory of Jesus is not always meant for public consumption. It's interesting to consider the way in which Christ reveals his glory. We might expect him to begin his public ministry by displaying in grand signs his glory, like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Somehow he showed a, a glimpse of his glory to his disciples and they came down glowing. But that's not what he does here. We might expect Jesus to maybe start out with, with a bang, you know, with one of his more powerful miracles, like maybe walking on water or raising someone from the dead. But instead... He performs this quiet, kind of behind-the-scenes miracle that only a handful of people know about. He gives a glimpse of His glory to some of His closest followers. The setting for the miracle is seen in verses 1-3. through 
two days after Jesus had met with Nathanael on the third day, Jesus and his disciples and his mother attend a wedding in Cana. Cana was Nathanael's hometown, according to chapter 21, verse 2. Weddings in the ancient Near East were community events, not just a couple-hour events like we tend to have them, but, but they focused on the bride and groom, certainly, but, but also on the extended families and the family connections that people had. And so the reception would often go on for a whole week. But there's a problem in verse 3, isn't there? Jesus' mother said, says to him, they have no wine. In other words, they've run out of wine. The significance of this wine running out is not a small detail. I mean, imagine what it would be like at your wedding if people came expecting to eat a fully catered meal and when it was time to eat, there were there's only enough for half of the guests. Everybody else got nothing. I mean, how long would people remember? How, how, how embarrassing would it be for the bride and the groom? I can tell you that people don't forget these things. My dad's sister got married about 40 years ago, and the bride and groom had planned to have some finger snacks for the reception along with cake and punch. The wedding was completed. The guests headed to the reception while the wedding party stayed back for pictures. And as the bride and groom delayed, the guests became hungrier and hungrier. And I think my dad was part of the wedding party, and so when he was done with his pictures, he headed over to the reception. And he's standing there with those starving guests. The table of food had been untouched, and the guests were waiting with bated breath to eat something, anything. My dad went over to the table and grabbed a single grape off of one of the trays and put it in his mouth. And the guests at the reception saw him as kind of an official representative of the family. And so they took his eating of that one grape as their cue that it was time to eat. And so they swarmed the table like locusts, leaving nothing behind but a few stems. Needless to say, my dad felt terrible, but at the same time, the short supply of food and the long delay was a kind of embarrassment for years to come. Mary recognizes that this is going to cause an embarrassment to the bride and groom if there is no wine. This was expected. So she reports it to Jesus. They have no wine. The fact that Mary knows about this wine running out and that she's concerned about it suggests that she's probably a close family member of the bride and groom. And maybe she had the responsibility of helping, to, helping with the, the food and the catering. And so she turns to Jesus with her problem. What is she expecting when she calls Jesus to help her? She's probably not simply passing on news because in verse 5 she expects something to happen. She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It could be that she's expecting a miracle. I mean, she does know that he is the Son of God. But most, excuse me. Most likely, she had simply learned to rely on the resourcefulness of Jesus, as uh, Dr. Carson mentions in his commentary. At this time, there's no mention of Joseph. Joseph's out of the picture. Very likely, Joseph has died by this time. The last time we we hear anything about Joseph is when Jesus was 12, and so Jesus 
being the oldest son, likely is tasked with taking over his father's business and caring for his mother. And so she's probably used to relying upon him to take care of situations. Maybe not expecting a full-on miracle, but whatever the case is, she turns to him for help. In verses 4 and 5, we see the glory of Jesus is subject to the will of the Father. The glory of Jesus is subject to the will of the Father. Jesus wants Mary to know that everything that he does must be subject to the will of the Father. That's why there's this kind of strange response that Jesus has in verse 4. He says, Woman, what does this have to do with us? It almost sounds like he's uninterested. And the, 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 the name that he calls her woman even sounds a little bit disrespectful, but in the ancient Near East that was not disrespectful at all. He does this often when he talks to his mother. He's probably likely trying to distance himself, saying, listen, it's not so much about family connections as it is about the will of my father. And the reason I say that is because of the next line. My hour has not yet come. I think the point that Jesus is making is that if he is going to help, then he must do it, do it according to his father's will. He must not prematurely display his glory to all in a way that will either bring about his death or his pre, uh, premature enthronement. Right? What happens when people start to see that this is the Messiah and they want to make him the king? And it wasn't his time. When he's talking about his hour not coming, uh, he uses this phrase several times in John's Gospel. And whenever he talks about his hours, he's, his hour, he's always referring to the time of his crucifixion. In chapter 7, verse 30, the crowd claimed that he had a demon and they wanted to kill him. But he slipped away from them, John says, because his hour had not yet come. In chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus equates himself with God the Father. And so they are ready to attack. How could anyone claim that they are one with the Father? But no one could seize him, John says, because his hour had not yet come. In chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus is preparing for his death. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In chapter 17, verse 1, in his prayer, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So here, what he's talking about is his death. I I cannot have my premature death. And what's going to happen when the Jews find out that I have done this great miracle? It was not time for Jesus to die. He, and so he hid his glory to an extent. In this miracle, only a few people know about what Jesus had done. His mother knew. His five disciples at this point, Andrew, Peter, John, Philip, and Nathaniel. And then these wedding servants, as it tells us in verse 9. Look at the middle of verse 9. Um, I'll just read the whole verse. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it come, came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew the head water called to the bridegroom. So the head waiter didn't understand where it came from. The servants did because they were the ones who drew the water, right? They filled up the water pots. And then when they went to, to draw it out, it was now wine. So they knew. So you only have a handful of, of people who know. And the point is that Jesus sees a bigger picture. His mother is thinking this. We've got to be careful about embarrassing the bride and groom. Jesus is thinking about a bigger picture. There's more to the story than the groom being embarrassed. Jesus does want His disciples to see His glory. But the revelation of His glory must be subject to the will of 
of his Father. That is, his Father in heaven. Verse 5, Mary trusts Jesus. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So maybe she doesn't fully understand what he's talking about with regard to his hour, but she trusts him. And so she calls the servants to to do whatever he says. In verses 6 through 10, the glory of Jesus is seen in his creative ability. The glory of Jesus is seen in his creative ability to abundantly provide. The water pots were not meant to store water for the guests to drink. You know, we might think, well, maybe that was just kind of like their reservoir. Their purpose is seen in verse 6. <coughs> Excuse me. There were six stone water pots. And what was their purpose? They were set there for the Jewish custom of purification. So the Jews used them to ritually cleanse themselves. They were not designed for people to drink from. They were designed for ritual cleansing so that they would be uh, clean before they came to the temple. Before they had a meal, they would have to go through this ritual as well. Each water pot, we're told, holds um, two to three measures, literally. But um, the text translates that for us, 20 or 30 gallons each. But, but the original says two or three measures. One measure is equivalent to eight or nine gallons, which means that um, each measure, uh, since there were uh, um, 20 gallons in each, or 16 to 27 gallons for each jar, and 96 to 162 gallons total. So you have this huge amount of water that, that has to be filled up. And it could be that Jesus is using some symbolism here saying, you know, these stone water pots that are designed for purification, I'm replacing with something that's abundant in blessing. I'm going to replace it with something that's, that's um, consistent with what the, the millennial kingdom will be like. It's going to be a time where the wine flows, where, where we will be uh, having a time of joy and abundance. Whatever the case, Jesus asked the servants to fill the water pots with water in verse 7. Remember, these water pots are made of stone, and so they would, they would each hold a, a hundred gallons. And so likely, they wouldn't carry the whole water pot over to the well and fill it up there. They would leave the water pot where it is and take smaller pots, go to the well, fill up the larger water pot. And then from those larger water pots, the servants, verse 8, drew out water and took it to the head waiter, but it had turned into wine. Before serving the wine, he tasted it and was amazed. The head waiter did. He thinks that the bridegroom is the one who provided this wine, but the disciples know, and Mary knows, and the servants know, and we know that Jesus was the one who provided the wine through his creative ability, his power, his glory, is responsible for this abundance, for this great miracle. Christ is working behind the scenes to provide for his people, and he's doing so in abundance. Thirdly, we see in verses 11 and 12 that the glory of Jesus leads to belief. The glory of Jesus leads to belief. Remember, John the Apostle has recorded these signs. Chapter 20, verse 30. I have recorded these signs so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life in his name. So as readers, we are supposed to see what the disciples saw. We are supposed to see that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And that's what we should see from this miracle. And only God can provide with such great ability, with creative ability, to bring about this kind of wine. 
Jesus is going to show more signs and miracles than these. He's going to heal the official son in chapter 4. He's going to heal the paralytic at the pool in chapter 5. He's going to feed the 5,000 and walk on water in chapter 6. He's going to heal the blind man in chapter 9. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And then the greatest of his signs will be when he rises from the dead himself. All these signs will lead to that great climax when Jesus rises from the dead, the greatest display of his glory. Notice how John describes this miracle in verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. So what does it look like when Jesus does a miracle like this? We could call it a manifestation of his glory. It's, it's a glimpse into who Jesus really is. I mean, who else does this except God alone? Remember, this is in keeping with John's purpose in writing so that his disciples would believe in him. And that's exactly what happens. Notice at the end of verse 11. And his disciples believed in him. In verse 12, they went from Cana to Capernaum, about 16 miles northeast of Canaan, and stayed there for a few days before they headed down to Jerusalem. Let me just uh, help us to consider three points of application. Number one, Jesus is the Messiah. The purpose of this story, and we're going to see this this principle, this point of application, <coughs> excuse me, often throughout the book of John, the purpose of this story is not for us to feel sorry for the groom who is in a bad spot for running out of wine. The purpose of this story is to show us that only God can turn water into wine. Only God has the power to provide for His people in a time of need. In a way of of abundance. And Jesus is the Son of God. He is sent from God to reveal from God who He is. Remember, Colossians and Hebrews call Him the exact representation of God's glory. We want to know what God is like. We want to know who God is. Then look at Jesus. Jesus is the great provider. He's the great miracle worker. And he, he, he provides in great abundance, and that's what He does here. He shows a glimpse of who He is. He's not, some, uh, he's not simply a good teacher or someone that we just can learn some, some examples from. Certainly we can. But the main thing that we know about Jesus is that He is the Messiah, the Son of God. Secondly, Jesus is careful about how He reveals His glory. Jesus is careful about how He reveals His glory. This was not a public miracle. It happened in public, but very few people knew about it. And the reason for this, I think, is clear. That once Jesus begins to perform public miracles, as He will in the next couple of chapters, His followers will want to make Him king, and His opponents will want to kill Him. And neither of these things can happen right away because His hour has not yet come. In time, Jesus will reveal more of Himself to His disciples, but for now, He has an agenda. He slowly unveils His glory to His disciples and uses much of His public ministry uh, to, to show who He is, that He is the promised Messiah. And He uses much of His time in private to teach His disciples. The Messiah is here, but His hour has not yet come. He still has work to do. We are getting a glimpse 
of the greater things that Jesus had promised to Nathanael, but the hour where he lays down his life and raises it back up again is not yet here. And so that's why Jesus is careful about how he reveals his glory. Finally, Jesus is calling for us to believe. The purpose of these miracles, the purpose of the revelation of Christ's glory is so that we will believe. The disciples needed to see for themselves themselves that Jesus is the Son of God. No one can force you to believe this. No one can make up your mind for you. You need to see this for yourself. You can't bank on what your parents have done. You can't bank on your, your parents' salvation. That's not going to work when you, get, when you stand before God. You have to decide for yourself, is Jesus who He said He was? Is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God? And so what John is inviting us to do is see for ourselves so that each of you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Look at Christ for yourself in the pages of his gospel, of John's gospel. One of the ways that Jesus reveals himself to us is reminding us, is by reminding us that he is God. And isn't this just like God? Sometimes God works in a very clear way and we know it's God. But isn't it true also that that Jesus is working here in this miracle much like how God works with us, often behind the scenes. We don't fully see it or understand how it all works together, but God is working to provide for us, isn't He? Even though we don't see His unshielded glory, we're reminded that He is constantly providing for us sunlight and rain for the crops. He's causing animals to grow so that we can have food. Have you not seen Christ provide for you in many other ways that other people would say, well, that's just a coincidence or that's just part of the circle of life. They wouldn't attribute it to God, but, but you know that God is abundantly providing and He often does so behind the scenes without saying a whole lot, very quietly. And when we see a new sunrise or when we see the, the first bloom on our plant, we're reminded of God's abundant provision that He's constantly providing for us. All over the world, God is providing for His creation. Most recently, my, when my sister-in-law was terminally ill and after she passed away, our family saw God provide in a number of ordinary and extraordinary ways. And, and those are the kinds of times that really bolster our faith. That it reminds us that all things are... <coughs> excuse me. All things are ordered and ordained by the sovereign, loving God of the universe. And God has not forgotten about us. God has not forgotten about my brother, that he's still caring for him, providing for him in ways that we wouldn't expect, that are abundantly above all that we can ask or think. And yet it's, it's not just at those times when we're in desperate need that God is providing, is it? It's every day. All things are created for God's glory and work out according to His time. Everything that God has done in revealing Himself to us is so that we would believe that His Son Jesus is the Christ and that in our believing we might have life in His name. And in our life we can bring glory to His name. We can deflect back the praise that belongs to Him. We can grow in our love and our knowledge of Him tell other people about him. 
so that much glory will be ascribed to his name. Let's bow together for prayer. take you for granted and your gifts, even when we think that that all that we have comes from our own hands, you remind us afresh that, that you are the great provider, that one of the reasons that you provide in the way that you do is because you are a good and loving God. And Jesus may have had different reasons for why he provided for the wedding guests privately and secretly. But, but we do, uh, we, we are reminded of your goodness. Thankful that Jesus is the Messiah. That you have sent the one whom you have promised to come and save his people from, his, from their sins. We are those people. We are those who have turned away from you and have deserved nothing but your wrath. And yet you, for some reason, have shown to us your mercy in giving us a Savior so that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's that death and resurrection that we want to remember this morning as we take the Lord's Supper and are reminded reminded of His mercy in providing a way for us to come to You. See what a great love You have bestowed upon us that we would be called sons of God, and such we are. We praise You, Lord, for loving us for continuing to stay faithful to us. In Jesus' name, amen.